Hi, and welcome to another episode of SwitchCast, a podcast delving into the world of film brought to you by the team at Switch. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Charlie David Page. I'm Jess Fenton. I'm Jake Watt. And I'm Chris Edwards. It's Thursday the 21st of September 2017. On this week's show, do you like to go solo or do you prefer the group thing? Of course I'm talking about going to the movies, and we'll discuss the benefits of catching a film on your own. Plus, franchises that'll be back. Terminator 6 just won't die, but who really wants these reboots, and why are so many sequels following suit? Do you want more? As you wish. We also talk the 80s classic that's celebrating the big 3-0. And as always, all our reviews and giveaways. Let's get straight into it with Kingsman The Golden Circle, the follow-up to the surprise 2015 hit. Chris, you took on this mission, so does a bigger budget and cast make it better? Oof, it does not. This one hurts, kids. Back in early 2015, a delightful surprise made its way into cinemas in the form of Matthew Vaughan's Kingsman The Secret Service. With his frequent co-writer Jane Goldman, and once again adapting the work of comic book genius Mark Miller, Vaughan delivered an exceedingly entertaining, fresh and fun spin on the 60s spy film, which for a James Bond fanboy like me was just a rollicking good time. Fast forward to today, and we have the release of its decidedly inferior follow-up, The Golden Circle, with Taron Egerton and Colin Firth returning to this time foil the evil plans of an all-powerful drug cartel run by, well, who else? Julianne Moore. Today marks the beginning of a new age. Wait, I'm gonna show you. Say goodbye to the Kingsmen. Kinda got a bit of a save the world situation here. Welcome to Statesman. As your American cousins, we'll be working side by side. Let's get started. We've got brains, skills, skipping rope. To lasso. The ways in which this film falls short of its predecessor are upsettingly plentiful. From the uninspired action scenes that are bombarded with cheap and weightless CGI, to its lack of any sort of character arc as grounding and satisfying as the first film's charming riff on My Fair Lady. However, most egregious is the uncomfortable undercurrent of mild misogyny, as every female character is really only there to be either a damsel in distress and therefore nothing more than stakes for their male counterparts, or as an annoyingly underwritten and undercut villain. Not a single action sequence involves a female, as none of them really have any sort of agency, and there's a particularly galling sequence that is just plain rapey. Sure, there are some fun scenes and charming performances, but this is a disappointing stumble for some accomplished filmmakers. I'm giving it two stars. Chris, 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 we've only just met and you've already broken my heart. I know, I I'm would... so sorry. <laughs> I loved Kingsman when it came out in 2015. I became obsessed with it. Taron Egerton got a new, really hardcore fan out of me. I had happy lady mm-hmm. fantasies about him. And mm-hmm. it right was, it was so great. And not only that, but um, Matthew Vaughan is Guy Ritchie's protege. And I thought he did a great job. It was this really funny new breath of fresh air. And ever since the trailer came out, I was skeptical. And yeah, like I said, my heart is now broken to find out that my skepticism was healthy and is now coming true. It's a dud. Yeah, it is. It just feels a bit rushed. Like, it feels like it needed a few more months cooking, (laughs) particularly at the script stage. Like, it's just kind of, 
I don't know, messy and bloated. Like, it's 20 minutes longer than the first one was, mm. and you kind of really feel it. Yeah. It's kind of disappointing that the um, women have been sidelined in this one, just because, like, the yeah. first one had, like, those really great female characters, mm-hmm. like um, Gazelle, the the chick with the blade legs, and um, Eggsy had, like, an off- like a female offsider who was, like, top of the class, if I remember. And... Yeah, Roxy. Roxy. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, so it's kind of a, an equal, kind of a bump. really, to him. Yeah, that kind of sucks. Yeah, all the female characters are really sidelined in this one. But in this weird, like, bro-y, douchey way that feels like the movie is one of those male feminists that's like, yeah, I love women. Women are so great, but also I don't actually want to deal with them. <laughs> It wants to get the title of a feminist without actually doing the hard work of being a feminist. Mm. What's um, Julianne Moore like? Like, she's fun. She's really good. She's clearly Mm. having a great time. And her character's given, like, an interesting little riff, like an interesting spin, like Samuel L. Jackson's character was given in the first one. But she's just not given a whole lot to do. Like, she's kind of given this one note that she plays really well, but then the film feels pretty uninterested in her. Can I tell you my biggest disappointment is actually... the introduction of the Americans. I agree. Mm. You know, I felt like this film, the, the first one, obviously, was just so British and it plays on that whole, um, yeah, the James Bond idea. And introducing the statesmen, the Americans, I don't know, kind of soured it a bit for me. Desperation for a new audience, mm. yeah. Yeah, there are some fun moments with, like, Shannon Tatum and Pedro Pascal from Game of Thrones and Jeff Bridges is really good in the brief moments he gets. But, yeah, it feels like a concept that kind of would have been better for, like, a third or fourth movie in a franchise. Like, the first one spent so long setting up this world. I don't know, I wanted to spend more time in that world, kind of exploring other parts of it and just enjoying the universe that it's set up to begin with, rather than immediately moving on to this new, completely different place that they have to set up alongside continuing all these other storylines and bringing back characters that you thought were dead, but really weren't. Yeah, I guess the thing with um, the first movie as well, it had that comic as the blueprint. Mm. And this one is, like, really its own beast. Like, Mark Miller didn't, you know, write the basis for this movie. It's just a spin-off of that original comic so yeah it kind of sucks that it's um can't really stand on its own legs to a degree yeah like as i said there are some inventive set pieces and some like fun parts but it just doesn't really cohere it feels a bit gross at times so yeah not great But in any case, you can find my full review at makethe-switch.com.au and Kingsman The Golden Circle is in cinemas now. Also out today is the Lego Ninjago movie, following on from the Lego movie and the Batman Lego movie and... Maybe it's not just me, but I'm sensing a pattern here. The Lego Ninjago movie takes us inside Ninjago City as Lloyd, the Green Ninja, voiced by Dave Franco, teams up with his friends and Lego Master Builders to defeat the evil warlord Garmadon, voiced by Justin Theroux. You ready for me to conquer Ninjago? Oh, I'll be waiting. Dad. Sorry? What was that last thing you said? What? That last part, I didn't catch it. Well, I, I, I didn't say anything. What do you mean? I didn't. Well, I, I said I'll be waiting and then I stopped talking. Are you ready to risk your life for Ninjago? Yes, I am on it. Maybe. The epic showdown will test this fierce yet undisciplined team of modern day ninja who must learn to work together to unleash their true power and save Ninjago City. Call me a child, but I'm pretty <laughs> excited for this book. You're a child. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I am. Also, I'd like to apologize to anyone <laughs> if I pronounced any of that incorrectly. Ninjago, Ninjago, I don't know, and quite frankly, I don't care. 
Let's call the whole thing off. Did you pronounce any of it correctly? <laughs> you say Ninjago, I say Ninjago. <laughs> yes, let's call the whole thing off. I'm so sick of the Lego movies. No, but that's so much fun. I think they've been pretty good so far. Like, I didn't do Lego as a kid. I'm not doing it as an adult. Nope. Yeah, I don't know. Like, the movie's been sort of pretty charming. Yeah, surprisingly charming. Both of them. Eh. <laughs> But this feels like a bit of a poor cousin to the other two films. Maybe it's just me. It doesn't seem to quite have the star power or the appropriate release date or it doesn't have the hype that the other two films had. Uh, I feel like it's really lacking in that regard. So I do feel like it's going to be a bit of a... Let's not forget the fact that no one knows how to pronounce the title. Well, there's also that. (laughs) I just maintain, like, the Jago is such a, a nebulous concept. Like, at least Lego movie, you know, it's about Lego stuff. The Batman Lego movie, okay, it's about Batman. Ninjago, Ninjago, whatever. It's just like, what the fuck is Ninjago? <laughs> it's like ninja stuff and uh, dragon <laughs> stuff and pirates and, you know, robots and um, cyborgs and all sorts of shit. And so it's kind of like, um, I don't know, like, how is a movie with such I think a. You just answered your own question. <laughs> how is a movie with, like, such a disparate brand supposed to, you know, come together as a whole when they're, they're making, like, a, a story about it, I guess? That's what I enjoyed most about, particularly the Lego Batman movie, is how well steeped in like Batman lore it was and how much fun it had with the entire long history of Batman. Yeah, that's, um, it was just a really well, (laughs) well researched movie. I thought that's the thing like Mm. Batman and the basic concept of Lego is familiar to everybody. Um, Ninjago, Ninjago is (laughs) like, you know, it's, it's very more niche, I guess. Yeah, clearly, because none of us know what the hell it is. <laughs> yeah, I think we should now, for now, we should call it the Ninjago movie and sort of cover our bases. I'm just very fond of Ninjango Unchained. Ninja- <laughs> <laughs> Say goodbye to Miss Laura. Goodbye, Miss Laura. Oh, God. <laughs> When's Leonardo DiCaprio going to do a Lego movie? <laughs> when will Leo get his Oscar for a Lego movie? That's the real question, people. Oh, they should remake Titanic with Lego people. There we go. Where's the James Cameron Lego movie? <laughs> the Lego Titanic movie. It's coming right after the Christopher Nolan Lego movie. Now that I would genuinely see. <laughs> morbid curiosity. <laughs> also out today is Mountain, the latest documentary from Sherpa director Jennifer Peedham. Jake embarked on this expedition, so how was the view from the top? Narrated by William Defoe and pieced together from over 2,000 hours of footage shot in 15 countries, Australian director Jennifer Peedham's Mountain is a 70-minute tribute to the Western explorers and adventurers risking their lives to climb the world's greatest heights. Mountaineers, ice climbers, tightrope walkers, base jumpers, wingsuiters, heli-skiers, snowboarders and mountain bikers risk life and limb for... nobody really knows. To those who are enthralled by mountains, their wonder is beyond all dispute. To those who are not, their allure is kind of madness. Mountains are so much more than a challenge or an adversary to be overcome. At height, you can be taken right to the brink. You never feel so alive knowing that at any minute you could die. 
Music by Chopin, Grieg, Vivaldi and Beethoven, as well as original music by Richard Tognetti, the artistic director of the Australian Chamber Orchestra, is expertly paired with the footage. Jennifer Piedem, Richard Tognetti, cinematographer Renan Ozturk, and Mountains of the Mind author Robin McFarlane have put together a beautiful, thrilling documentary. Not only is it a visual and oral treat, it also poses philosophical questions of its audience and will make you ask, what is this strange force that draws us upwards? This siren song of the summit. Four stars. So I've got to admit, I was a bit of a fan of Sherpa, Jennifer Piedem's last documentary. It was pretty impressive. But I'm also a big fan of films like Baraka and following on from that, Samsara. And to me, this kind of comes off as a bit of a combination of Samsara meets uh, some kind of Red Bull action film. Uh, that's the vibe I'm getting from it. So I'm kind of really keen to see it for that regard. Um, I'm a little bit confused. There's 2,000 hours worth of footage. It involves extreme sports and yet it only runs 70 minutes. Fast editing. Yeah, okay. They've like sifted through all the archival footage of different uh, cliff climbs, sporting events, you know, GoPro, personal stuff, and just basically cobbled together kind of like a best bits of... A um, highlight reel. A highlight reel. <laughs> and um, it is pretty amazing. Like, basically, it varies between these uh, long-distance shots of, you know, these dudes, like, uh, snowboarding down a sheer mountain, you know, cliff faces. And you also get, like, a mix of almost first-person style footage of guys clinging to ice crevasses and, uh, and things like that. So they've really just gone through and, like, put up every possible variation of Daredevil uh, adventure mountain climbing style stuff it just really and just mixed it really seamlessly as well so it isn't, it isn't like a jarring transition to go from a guy like um, pedaling his bicycle off a cliff and then using it to base jump to um, skiers or um, or mountain climbers like it's just really like elegantly edited and put together and this film also had its premiere i believe at sydney film festival with a live performance with the australian chamber orchestra i'm actually gutted i didn't get to see it for that um i think that would have been spectacular yeah it would have been amazing like all like these documentaries i'm pretty sure that they're classified as uh, art documentaries so they don't really have uh, much of a narrative but they exist really to build a mood well this movie has to be seen on a big screen basically so you know go out and see this movie now while it's in cinemas but um yeah seeing it at the opera house with the live orchestra behind it on a massive screen would have been um would have been amazing I'm kind of gutted that I didn't get to see it uh, see it there either. You can find my full review at maketheswitch.com.au and Mountain is in cinemas now. You can also find Beatrice at dinner in cinemas today. Chris got the invite to this feast for the senses, so was it a tasty morsel? You're atrocious. <laughs> Thank you. Directed by Miguel Arteta and written by the underrated, fantastic Mike White of School of Rock and the wonderful HBO series Enlightened, the film focuses on Salma Hayek's Beatrice, a holistic health therapist unexpectedly trapped at the home of a wealthy client when her car breaks down. A planned dinner party becomes a battleground as Beatrice faces down her host's boss, a decidedly Trumpian figure played with relish by John Lithgow. Can I uh, get another bourbon, hun? Oh, no, Doug, this is Beatrice. She's staying for dinner. Oh, you were hovering. I just figured you were part of the, the staff. Do I know you? Doug's famous. He's been on the news. I don't know why. I think I know you. Ever dance in Vegas? <laughs> Thank you for having us at your stunning home. So, Doug, you build hotels? I just own them. I always had inside me the desire to be a healer. Good for you. You're working. You're contributing. 
We're going to South Africa in a couple of days. It's true what they say. Those animals would basically be gone if it wasn't for the hunting. I don't consider it murder. It's like this original dance of man and beast, the struggle for survival. Are you for real? You killed this hey. You think it's funny? I think it's sick. You think that you can hide up here behind these gates and that everything is gonna be all right? The world doesn't need your feelings. It needs jobs, it needs money, it needs what I do. The world doesn't need you. Doug is a great philanthropist. Shut up, Gus. This can't possibly end well. Incredibly timely and beautifully intimate in its focus on Beatrice, the filmmakers craft a nuanced character study rather than a simple and easy culture clash farce. Hayek is fantastic and gives maybe one of the best performances of the year, making Beatrice not just a simple, saintly figure, but a complicated, righteous, abrasive, imperfect woman thrust into this situation and dealing with her own demons at the same time. In these divided, plebiscite-infected times, the overall mood this film conjures has stayed with me, as its textures and tones were so unexpectedly hard, sharp, and perfectly attuned to 2017. I'm giving it four stars. What a fantastic review. Um, Just a couple weeks ago, I was praising Selma Hayek for a very small supporting role in the, um, as you would call it, Chris. Very similar film. Aggressively average Hitman's Bodyguard. (laughs) Basically the exact same film. This makes me so excited that she's, this is a starring role for her. I'm trying to remember the last time she carried a film. But she is so fantastic. She's amazing. She's one of the most underrated and underused actresses working today. Totally. She's no spring chicken. She's getting old older um she's 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 getting older she's foreign and roles like this don't come around every day so it's it's exciting to see her grab it by the balls yeah 100 percent. no i'm just i'm after that i'm so excited to see this now yeah she delivers like i actually am not that familiar with someone like i realized during the film i was trying to think of other performances of hers that I've seen that have impressed me this much. 30 Rock. Oh my god, yeah. It's like her career-defining role, clearly. Completely. Frida. But yeah, I haven't seen Frida, which she got the Oscar nomination for, (laughs) but she's so good. And the film itself is so great as well. I was expecting this kind of, like, easy comedy with, like, oh, a farce about crazy cultures clashing at a dinner party. Oh, but no, it's a lot kind of sadder and more honest than that. Mm. I'd also like to point out that you, while you were praising the writer as underrated and fantastic Mike White, yeah, he gave us the Emoji Movie. Um, so <laughs> he's like, he's writing quite the wave of late. <laughs> I mean, the argument could be made that they are beautiful companion pieces, <laughs> each tackling what it means to be a human being alive in the world. Comments on modern society. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Commenting upon the modern technological craze of the emoji movie (laughs) and then taking the political minefield in Bitter Is a Dinner. No. But, you know, he's great. I was surprised to see that he co-wrote the emoji movie because, ugh. But, like, Enlightened, School of Rock. Yeah. Um other things that he's written <laughs> he's a fun actor as well yeah totally he, um, the director uh, miguel arteta the guy who directed it he also directed cedar rapids which was a really oh, super that, Ed Helm or, movie, right? that was a that was a really good movie um a really underrated comedy and he also made the good girl which is like jennifer aniston's like one good movie mm. 
So yeah, <laughs> the guy's actually pretty good, I think. Um, he's a good director, so... Yeah, he does really well with this as well. Like, it feels like it could have been a very writerly film, like a very script-focused film. Mm. But he actually crafts really interesting frames and really kind of succinctly demonstrates the gulf between Beatrice and these other more affluent more privileged characters in fun visual ways even down to the costuming how was um john lithgow he's great like annoyingly good because he's normally this like scenery chewer but and he's kind of doing that here as well but his character is so normal in his assholery like <laughs> listening to him talk like you feel the trump vibes but you're also like oh i've i've had dinner with this guy <laughs> Like, maybe not this guy specifically, because he's this, like, multi-billionaire. But, oh, I've had these infuriating conversations with this person who is completely diametrically opposed politically to me, but is so devout in their own beliefs, as wrong as you think they are. And so the film is kind of honest in this depiction of, she doesn't always say the right things. Like, she doesn't have the perfect comebacks for him. And it's frustrating and kind of devastating. But so natural. Yeah, so natural and so honest. Yeah, because we don't get to script the perfect comeback. We have to do it on the spot and sometimes we fail frustratingly. Yeah, because we are not perfect mouthpieces for democracy. (laughs) We are just normal people who have these views. You're wrong. Yeah, exactly. That's all you want to say to him during the film. (laughs) Just sort of like, oh, eat a dick, dumb shit. <laughs> um, but yeah. But that's not the sort of thing that wins Oscars, so. Should be. No, unfortunately not. <laughs> yeah, it's really stayed with me over the past few days since I've seen it. And it might end up being one of my favourites of the year. Ooh, high praise. Yeah. yeah. I think um, Mike White, White, like he writes really good lady parts. <laughs> maybe, that, maybe that came out wrong Put it on the poster Put it on the poster You know what I'm talking about He writes Oh that's the best But yeah I do agree because Laura Dern in Enlightened Yeah, oh. yeah exactly oh. And this Don't is up there Don't you in all, all the little, the little brats in School of Rock <laughs> Exactly um, Yes Summer yes. <laughs> He's just one of those guys who's like really has his like kind of um, I guess uh, finger on good dialogue. Pretty talented dude. I mean, aside from like emoji mm. movie, but just like sort of scrub emoji movie from his <laughs> his uh, filmography. Whoa. But um, his other stuff is yeah been pretty been pretty amazing. So yeah, yeah. I'm like, actually I'm looking really looking forward to this film. Like just everyone involved seems to be pretty interesting. Well, Beatrice at Dinner is in cinemas now, and you can find my full review at maketheswitch.com.au. I'd also like to point out that Mike White wrote eight episodes of Dawson's Creek. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, now you have to why. see the film. I don't know why. Carry on. <laughs> well, the Belko experiment arrives in cinemas from today. The gory thriller from Wolf Creek director Greg McLean. Jake joined the hordes for this film, so did it have the shock value of his previous work? Mike, played by John Gallagher Jr., is one of 80 workers at Belco Industries, a non-profit government organisation in Colombia. An average day turns into a nightmare when high-tech shutters turn the office tower into a steel cocoon and a voice on the intercom instructs them to kill their co-workers. Failure to comply means devices in their heads will explode. Things escalate even further as factions are formed, and some of the office alpha males take things into their own hands. All employees, lend me your full attention. Your chance of survival increases by following my orders. 
Your task is simply this. Kill three of your co-workers, or we will kill six others. His head exploded from the inside. What? When we start working here, they put tracers in the back of our heads. We need to discuss all our options. We do not have the right to take innocent human lives. What are you doing? My wife and kids need me. Stage two, commence. We don't need no more weapons. We need to work together to get the hell out of here. Directed by Greg McLean, this film is completely impersonal and free of any artistic style. Seemingly at a loss without the striking landscapes associated with his best films, like Wolf Creek and Rogue, this is really workmanlike stuff from McLean. James Gunn's script, which he wrote prior to directing Super, all the way back in 2010, attempts to juggle action, horror, and low-key comedy. But the dialogue just isn't very witty, the plot is super predictable, and the characters are very thin. This movie is actually quite boring. Ultimately, this film exists simply to cash in on James Gunn's current success with Guardians of the Galaxy via one of his old discarded ideas. My advice is just to watch Battle Royale and Office Space back-to-back instead. Two stars. Mm, Between this and Jungle, which I saw at the film festival... Greg McLean is having a rough year. What's what's the deal? Like, do you think he is a good director, or like, why is he so? Just picking bad the wrong projects. People? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I've, I mean, I've never actually seen Wolf Creek. It's kind of one of those blind spots what? I've got when it comes to Australian film. I know. I'm so sorry. You, but based on Jungle, it's as you said, it's workmanlike. There's no real personality, and even that had yeah. the like, striking landscapes from his other films, but he still couldn't wrangle, like, an interesting story from a true-life kind of incredible story. It instead just fell really flat. Like, with McLean's good stuff, he just... He really relies pretty heavily on Australia as, like, a character in his films. So, like, mm. you know, Rogue and, and all the Wolf Creek, Wolf Creek 1, to the series, it's all really couched in, like, Australiana and... The landscapes and the way people talk and he has a real feel for it and belko to me is just like anyone could have directed this movie it, it just it really doesn't feel like it's just a um kind of mercenary work for hire style job yeah it sounds like his personality is so tied to australia and tied to a sense of place but mm. yeah it doesn't sound like it comes through in either of these films like particularly belko experiment so for Belko, am I right in thinking that it's like Saw meets um, Lord of the Flies? I would say it is pretty much like a straight up, like, you know, battle royale. Like the Saw thing, it really is like a one-trick pony. They're just kind of like, there's bombs in your heads or in your necks, I should say. You've got to kill everyone else. So there's no real kind of elaborate Saw style, you know, escalation of whatever. It's a pretty simple yeah. thing. And, okay, um, tell me this, because if they don't, yep. it'll really piss me off. Do they explain how these bombs allegedly get got in their head i mean surely the people yeah. notice if something was surgically implanted in their body it's not just one of those things you kind of have to take with a grain of salt they do actually that's not really a spoiler either it's also super lame but um the uh, the bombs are in the necks as um they are implanted as tracking devices in case they're kidnapped in colombia so uh ah. as part of the insurance policy when they join the company they have to have these things in the necks and which they they okay. assume it's just like totally normal um, yeah, yeah, it's pretty okay. that makes classic. Because who hasn't worked yeah, yeah, for a company that's yeah. 
insisted on a tracking device. Into your head. Yeah, of course. That's this whole film just seems like so C grade from absolutely everything from like the storyline to the cast to the I mean when me. the president from Scandal is one of the most recognizable faces in your cast you probably not. <laughs> Come on, the main guys from Newsroom. True, I do love John Gallagher Jr. Yeah. Is he at least good? Yeah, well, he's like a, a likable dude. Like, the actors are quite good in this. So, it's like, it's John C. McGinley, you know, Michael Rooker, all those dudes. Um, they're, they're good actors. They just have zero to work with except, like, the thinnest kind of, you know, office politics style, you know, archetypes. Like, you know, nerd, bully, all that stuff. It's just, it, look, the movie itself is just, yeah. it's super boring. It shouldn't even be a movie. That it's like James Gunn's making billions of dollars on Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy. What else do you have in your drawer? And he's just going, okay, I got this. Yeah. And Take this like, from okay, the we'll slush pile. You can have it for a dollar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can find my full review at maketheswitch.com.au. And the Belco experiment is in cinemas now. Australia Day is also in cinemas. On a sweltering Australia Day in Brisbane, the worlds of three young people collide. Indigenous teen April, young Chinese woman Lan and Sammy, and Iranian-Australian teen are desperate and on the run. As each of their stories unfold, a farmer, played by Brian Brown, Indigenous policewoman Shari Siebens, and homicide detective Matthew Leneves are also swept into a whirlpool of violence, racism, and resentment. Oh, God. What a man. Your job is to protect your family. Do it. Make this right. I know why you did what you did. Just don't run anymore. I'm alone. You're not alone. I'm not going to leave you. Australia Day offers a fascinating take on national identity and the cruel tension that lurks beneath the surface of modern Australian society. Finally, you can find Tokyo Ghoul in cinemas today. This Japanese dark action horror film is based on the popular manga series by Suishida, published from 2011 to 2014. Set in an alternate reality where ghouls, individuals who can only survive by eating human flesh, live among the normal humans in secret, Ken Kaniki, played by Matsutaka Kubota, is a normal college student who discovers that he is being transformed into a half-ghoul after being attacked by his date. Over-the-top gore and violence ensue. Now let's check out the upcoming films in our trailer wrap. Here's Red Sparrow. When I was in Moscow, I heard about a program. Young officers trained to seduce and manipulate. To use their bodies. To use everything. Call them sparrows. That's what she is. I actually heard of this movie when a friend of mine uh, sent me a message on Facebook Messenger and the message read, dude, Red Sparrow. If that's like an indication of, I guess, you know, the, the selling point of this movie to, I don't know, like dudes, uh, <laughs> you know, that's it. It's like Jennifer Lawrence um, wearing like sort of sexy Russian spy gear, garroting dudes and spy hijinks. It's kind of worth noting that this movie is by Francis Lawrence who directed the majority of the Hunger Games movies with uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Francis Lawrence isn't very good. <laughs> He's just like, uh, you might be a fan of the Hunger hey. Games movies. The Hunger Games movies were okay, but the guy himself like really isn't that good a director. Uh, aside from the Hunger Games, he's done I Am Legend. He's bought an Oscar winner and franchise yep. yeah, head, and it feels like a favor. Yeah. Like I, after watching this trailer, I was like, no, Jennifer Lawrence does not fit 
this movie at all. She doesn't deserve it. No. <laughs> yeah. It just didn't seem right. And obviously off the back of Atomic Blonde, it now just seems redundant, doesn't it? Well, there's like a market for these movies as well, I think. Yeah. It kind of makes me think like, you know, Marvel's been sitting on the whole Black Widow thing with Scarlett Johansson for so long. But these movies are actually pretty popular. Like I'd be kind of inclined to check out Red Sparrow. Um, Atomic Blonde looked pretty interesting to me. Like there is like a, a growing market now for kick-ass female action movies and stuff. So but Why do they yeah, all exactly. seem so lame like why yeah. can't they make a good one that's the question guys like francis lawrence exactly they get their <laughs> fingers in the pie i mean this is another this is a book adaptation uh atomic blonde was a graphic novel series maybe someone just needs to come up with something a bit more original like what's the thing know, like the, we need book. like a scott pilgrim-esque yeah. female character i don't know i mean how much originality does john wick have or fucking any of the other like male-led franchises that people seem to give a pass on a daily basis like i'm all for another like slightly average female-led action movie <laughs> if it means another film that is actually led by a female yeah. yeah, but I had such high hopes for Atomic Blonde. Uh, like, I, I was really hoping it was going to be something super exceptional. And it really let me down in a lot of ways. Yep. So, I don't know. I just, I, I'd like something that was a bit more outstanding. Like, if you're going to put Jen- Jennifer Lawrence in a film, make it a bloody good one. Yeah, like Passengers. I actually liked Passengers. Shut up. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, God. I mean, like, don't Keanu- get me wrong. It, it had its flaws, but I still enjoyed it. Like, Keanu Reeves movies get, get, get passed because it's like Keanu Reeves. <laughs> like, Keanu Reeves is like a shit actor, right? But you have like Jennifer Lawrence and like Charlize Theron and they're like Academy Award winning actresses and stuff. You can't really slot them into some Keanu Reeves vehicles and expect people to be like, oh, okay, well, this is okay. Like but this is Maybe Chris is right. Maybe this is the female feminism. Maybe this is the battle before we start heading towards the war. Wet everyone's whistle before we start going after the good stuff. Yeah, I just wish there were better people sort of fighting the battle alongside Jennifer Lawrence and, and Charlize Theron so they didn't have to do all the heavy lifting themselves. Mm-hmm. Like Francis Lawrence, well, like, Alicia, I am legend. Uh, Alicia Vikander's about to join ranks with um, Tomb Raider. Does that oh, help? Yeah, and who's who's saying that that's going to be a good choice? And she's also an Oscar winner. Hey, sensing a pattern? <laughs> if anything, the only thing that annoys me is that it's a male director. Like, if anything, Wonder Woman yeah. is kind of shown that you know crazy idea female directors can do action movies and maybe that's what these two films have been lacking maybe they need a bit more of a female touch to ensure that the the female star isn't just completely written off in this shitty film but that's the thing, it's mm. a double-edged sword because first of all there are so few female directors and i think a lot of them want to make better films than just some throwaway action I mean, Patty Jenkins did prove that you can you can do it. You can have kind of the best of both worlds. But Wonder Woman, look, personally, I didn't think it was as good as everyone was making it out to be. But I did. So it was still a, a very decent film and I enjoyed it. Yeah, there was recently there was a panel of female directors and female creators. And one of them had this really funny quote, which was just like, people who say that female directors don't want to do like action movies. It's like, you're offering us more money and more visibility to do bigger films. Like, of course... Of course we want to do that. It's like saying, like, women don't want to play sports mm. and stuff. And so, I don't know, like, there's all these female directors doing, like, the indie-level films that people like fucking Colin Trevorrow or the other mm. kind of mid-level average white male directors are doing before they then get, like, a Star Wars movie or a Jurassic World movie. So, what? where are their next steps? Catherine Bigelow needs to get in on this. She's got an action brain. She's got an action viewpoint and things. And she makes really great sort of male-dominated films. If only she could translate that into a female project, it'd be awesome. 
Well, you can catch Red Sparrow in Australian cinemas from the 1st of March 2018. Now, let's take a look at the full-length trailer for The Disaster Artist. Los Angeles, everybody wants to be star. You have to be the best and never give up. When I get up on stage in front of people, all I can think about is, what if they laugh at me? You, man, you're fearless. I want to feel that too. I don't care. I'll do it. You and me, we both have this dream. Yeah, I guess we do. <laughs> Wish we could just make our own movie. A great idea. So there's this guy, Johnny, a true American hero to be played by me. He has it all. Good luck, many friends. And also, maybe Johnny is vampire. We'll see. This set of the alleyway looks exactly like the real alleyway. That's right. Well, why don't we just shoot in the real alleyway? Because it's a real Hollywood movie. No, yeah, sounds good. Okay, action. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. I'm hearing really, really good things about this movie. And I'm very excited. Yeah. There's been premieres and screenings throughout the year at different film festivals. And I personally have been hearing some interesting word as well. And yeah, it's just surprisingly solid. Yeah. Well, up until recently, and I mean very recently, Kingsman was probably my most anticipated film of the year. Um, and now it's this. I'm reading the book. I've seen the original movie recently. And, oh, my God, I cannot get over how excited I am for this movie. I think it's in amazing hands with um, James Franco. He looks fantastic in it. And even if he has filled out the cast with his merry band of friends and misfits, they all work. They're great comedic actors and they're just great actors in their own right. And this makes me very, very excited. And it's even got a cameo by um, Tommy Wiseau as well. So. so what you're saying is we could get one of the best films of the year from one of the worst films of all time. I'd- Who saw that coming? What a narrative. What? <laughs> the old switcheroo. The new trailer does show us a lot more than our previous look. I mean, the previous look was literally one scene. I did over not hit it. I did not. <laughs> oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> this, this time around, you get to see a lot more of uh, James Franco. You get to see. You get to see a lot more of James Franco. He's naked in this trailer. <laughs> yeah, literally. Like, a lot you more of James Franco. You get a really garish ass shot. <laughs> I really like James Franco. I am so ready for him to not be a joke anymore. <laughs> what about his hairdo? Are you liking the hairdo? Oh, yeah. Like, and the prosthetic mm, tears. No, actually, I think it is his real hair. Really? No. no. Well, I've seen him, like, a lot of film festivals and things, he's he's either still wearing the wig or he's got that hair. <laughs> I would not put it past him to still be wearing that wig. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, like, I really like James Franco. For a while there, he was really up and coming. He got an Oscar nomination. He was the next big thing. And then somehow over the past few years, he's become this kind of running joke. <laughs> yeah. I actually kind of hate James Franco, but I'm really keen to go and see this movie. I just, um, I don't know. Just like, it's like this movie works for me. Like I, don't, I think I've actually tried to, you know, sit through a few movies James Franco's directed and they're terrible. Like they are like painful, <laughs> <laughs> but um it actually works in the context of him playing this role. It mm. works. Like him him being like not such a great director like works in this for the, for this movie. So I'm actually really keen to um keen to check it out. Like it's a shame Dave Franco's in it as well because Dave Franco has no redeeming qualities. Oh, Dave, like hey Dave Franco to me is just, Shush yeah, now. Just, no, that cannot be stated when His Dave Franco is, is so fuckable. Exactly. That's what's so painful <laughs> as well. Like Wilson Bree is way too good for for Dave Franco. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, have you seen his torso? 
wash your mouth out. He's like four feet tall. What are you? Have you seen his I'm body? I'm like four feet tall. Oh, work. It's perfect for me. <laughs> Apparently, I'm very passionate about the Franco brothers. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know this until this moment, and here we are. I think there's a third one too, by the way. You and Brent are both big day Franco fans. <laughs> There you go. You subbed one gay out for another one. <laughs> you have one, they're all the same. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Well, The Disaster Artist is in Australian cinemas from the 30th of November. And finally, let's take a look at Better Watch Out. What was that? Oh, my God. Get away from the window. There's something there. I'll find you. Don't worry, I'll protect you. Isn't this exciting? As we all know, I don't do horror movies, but <clears throat> this film is horror, it's comedy, and it's Christmas. So for me, it ticks two out of three boxes. I'm really excited. It's also got a very strong Australian presence with our two leads. Yeah, this movie looks hilarious. I love horror comedies. I'm thinking like Shaun of the Dead and and none others are coming to my mind right now. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Cabin in the woods. No, this one looks great. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy. And obviously it puts a spin on Christmas movies. Yeah, I've got to say, it goes really quickly from like Home Alone up to like turning it up to level 11. You yeah, the all purge. of a sudden have like these, <laughs> these 12-year-old kids like slaughtering intruders in the house and I don't know, maybe tying up the babysitter no, and it, I don't know, it looks that. fucking weird. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was going to go and see it at, um, at Sydney Film Festival, but um, I was trying to get like an impression from the reviews and it seemed super, like super gory, so... I was, um, I was like, yeah, I'll, mm. I'll wait until, I'll wait and see that a little bit later on. Um, you know, horror like works really well with with Christmas. I don't know why. It just, it's, it's one of those things because it's horrendous time of the year. <laughs> yeah, Shut yeah. Shut up, Grinch. Because like a couple of years ago, we had that movie, um, <laughs> the Krampus with another uh, yeah. Tony Krampus, Krampus. Yeah. Krampus. Yeah. which never it made it to fine. Australian cinemas. Yeah, that was an okay movie. And isn't Home Alone a Christmas horror comedy as well? <laughs> Has anyone seen Black Christmas? No. Black Christmas is one of the no. scariest fucking movies I have ever seen. And it is like, um, God, uh, I think it was like made in like the late 70s or something. And you can still watch it now. And it's is it a Tyler Perry movie? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess you could sort of see it as a companion piece to Blackula and Blackenstein. But th- there are no black people in this movie. And uh, it has like Margot Kidder when she's like, um, I don't know, 20 and, uh, and super hot. And, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like a legitimately scary movie. It's like the original kind of um, Stranger Calls, and um, he, but he's in the house uh, movie. Uh, but it's aged. Yeah. You know, really yeah, and it well. got a terrible remake like 10 years or so ago. An awful remake, yeah. But anyway, like sort of, <laughs> yeah, Christmas, Christmas and horror, like they just like go together, like two of those things you don't really expect to go together, but when they go together, they, um, they can make something pretty, pretty cool a lot of the time. And as Jess mentioned earlier, uh, there are not just one, but two. Two younger Australian actors, uh, Ed Oxenbold, 
who Daniel absolutely adores, who's taking over Hollywood at the moment. And as well, Levi Miller, who you'll know from Red Dog, True Blue. Um, Pan. Pan as well, yes. And uh, and Jasper Jones, if you've seen that. Um, so two really good Australian stars in this very twisted Christmas film. <laughs> Represent Australia. <laughs> I like uh, Ed Oxenbold. He's a pretty um, he's a pretty smart actor. Like um, Butterfly Tree that I saw not too long ago. He was awesome in that, and um, he was like mm, also in, mm. in The Visit and yeah. that M Night Shyamalan. Yeah. yeah Plains Alexander and the very bad, no good, terrible, shitty, shitty day. Yeah. Classic. <laughs> classic film <laughs> that everyone knows. <laughs> hey, don't say that. Daniel will come and find you out and kill you. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. Daniel loves that film. Yeah, it's like one of his most favorite uh, recent Disney films. Oh, yeah. Daniel. My goodness. <laughs> Have some self-respect. But he was awesome in The Butterfly Tree. I will, I will admit that. He's, he's actually kind of grown up now and uh, has kind of lost his kiddish charm. He's kind of like a, an older teenager now, but he did a really good job in, in The Butterfly Tree. Um, yeah, there's got a bit of um, nuance to him for like a, I guess, well, how old is he now? 16? Like, is he a child actor? 16, teen uh, actor? Well, you can catch Better Watch Out in Australian cinemas from the 23rd of November, and there's plenty more trailers out this week, including All the Money in the World, a new trailer from Disney Pixar's Coco, the Red Band trailer for The Shape of Water, and Netflix's Our Souls at Night. So to check them all out, head to youtube.com forward slash make the switch AU. Well, we've recently learned that the long-threatened new Terminator film, the sixth in the franchise, has secured itself a new director, with Mike Teller, the man behind Deadpool, taking the reins while James Cameron looks set to be producing. Given that 2015's Terminator Genesis was far from a success, and precisely nobody is begging Hollywood for a follow-up, why won't this franchise just die? And why are so many similar reboots on life support so insistent on flogging a dead horse? Answer me. Money. Money makes <laughs> yeah, the sure. world go round. Okay, so this is the sixth Terminator, and then there was the TV series as well, was it the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and they've been getting progressively worse over time. But here's the thing, they keep filling these sequels with really great actors, like Amelia Clark and even Christian Bales had a stab at it, and they just keep getting worse and worse and worse. This is the first time that James Cameron has been attached to one of these projects since Judgment Day, which does give it a slight reign of hope but it also probably means that he's sick of watching people butchering his baby and his good name and he's decided to take it back but fuck like no one wants this movie i mean the last one even brought back arnold schwarzenegger and he's like old now and stuff and like no one cares anymore they've ruined the legacy of this franchise let me take you back to 2015 when terminator genesis was released (laughs) it was made for roughly 155 million. That's less than I would have thought. Yeah, considering Arnie was in it, but it ended up making about 440 million at the box office, which is not a huge margin when you're talking about uh, films these days. Even going back to 2009 when we had Terminator Salvation, that was even worse, 200 million, while it only took in 371 million. So these films are not exactly doing well. So why why do they just keep wheeling them out i mean is it just because it's an easy story you don't have to come up with any new ideas or exactly is the reason behind this it also just doesn't make sense as a franchise like it keeps 
folding in on itself and making these new, more and more convoluted stories out of these same set of mm. characters with the same set of situations. It's because it deals with time travel. So yeah, once you add time, time travel. travel and you've got different realities and different timelines and people are coming back in time and you know impregnating people that are going to be born in the future and all this it gets it gets yeah it gets very very messy but that's how they sort of work their way around these stupid stupid fucking movies i think there's also a lot of second guessing as well like the first one was made and it was great and then the second one was made and it was even better and it like blew everyone away and then they kept going but without, and then they shat the bed. Yeah, they sh- they shat the bed <laughs> so hard. They, got, you know, um, James Cameron wasn't there anymore, and Arnold Schwarzenegger eventually left, and they took away everything that made this movie great. And they're like, "Yeah, we can keep going; it'll be fine." It's like, no, it really wasn't that easy. It just goes to show how hard it was to make a movie about a fucking cyborg, good and decent, and actually quite intelligent when you think about it. And when the person you try to bring in to save your franchise is fucking Sam Worthington. You know you're in a dangerous, <laughs> dire situation. He was, he was very big at the time. Not so much anymore. It was, it was better than Jai <sighs> Courtney, you know. To my salvation, I actually didn't... I didn't think that movie was that bad. But they just... I don't know. They kind of, like, leapt forward into the far future and then just went, oh, this didn't make as much money as we thought it was going to be, so let's kind of go back to basics and, I don't know, like, retread it. And it's just a real lack of overall planning and decisiveness for that franchise, I think. Like, mm. there's, just, there's just no real kind of vision for it, like, long-term vision for it, so... Yeah, it feels like each film is a new writer being like, oh, I don't know, what let's about this? this, I guess? Yeah. And there are so many other franchises that are doing the same thing, though. Oh, so many. Like, yeah. so many that just continue coming back to diminishing returns. Parts of the Indiana Jones yep. is coming back. They've ditched Shia LaBeouf. He's, like, yeah, he's gone. I mean, thank God for small blessings. But Harrison Ford is back, and they're making another one. Even though, if you mm. ask purists, if you ask Indiana Jones purists, they will say that there are only three Indiana Jones films, not four. We forget about the fourth one. We pretended it didn't exist. We threw it in a box, and then we threw that box in the fires of Mordor. So, and then you put it in a fridge, and it survived the fires of Mordor, and, and somehow and it's still kicking. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh my god, it's alive. It's so bad. Um, I mean, you can say the same about the Alien slash Prometheus films. Like, yeah, fuck you, yeah. exactly is begging those to be coming back. Like, we really didn't need that. You're just kind of fucking up the franchise even further, mm. especially such a good franchise to begin with. I don't know. I like, I'll take another Alien slash Prometheus film, which is actually no. trying to do like interesting thematic things over yet another fucking Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Well, fortunately, I don't think we'll be seeing any more of those in the near future after the struggles they had with their lead actor. I don't know. I've heard there are plans for three more. Who knows if those rumours are true? Don't say that. (laughs) Are you in the fetal position right now? (laughs) I am rocking back and forth. (laughs) Can't sleep. Johnny Depp, believe me. (laughs) (sighs) I'm just going to make a prediction as well. Like, all these franchises will just... They're going to eventually stop making these franchises and just do them purely as, like, spin-offs. So, like, you have, like, Fast and the Furious. There's way, way too many Fast and the Furious. Furiouses. Furious Eye. Furious Furiosis. And, um, Furious. And, um, but they're talking about making, like, spin-offs now for individual characters. Oh. And, um, God. Transformers, same deal. Shitty franchise. They're making spin-offs now for the individual robots or whatever oh, the fuck. Now they're trapping um, Haley Steinfeld in there. What? <laughs> 
Yeah, Haley Steinfeld is the lead of Bumblebee. Oh, cool. <laughs> and John Cena. I'm going to say, like, uh, Terminator will eventually go that route as well. You know, there'll be, like, a John Connor spinoff or a, you know, Sarah Connor solo thing or whatever. It just seems like the, the easiest way to bypass that, yeah. um, you know, franchise fail. It makes me upset because these films, like, all of these franchises that we're talking about, they have been box office and critical bombs. So what the fuck do these films, these franchises, have to do to finally make someone go... We're done. No more. They're not making enough money. They're not good enough to bring people to the cinemas or even get a tomato, not a green smoosh on Rotten Tomatoes. So what is happening? I don't... What the fuck do they have to do? Merchandise, maybe? Merchandise has to fail? <laughs> like, <laughs> really? Like it's like all those movies, like a lot of those franchises we talked about are just reliant on like multimedia merch sales and stuff as well. So, well, yeah, that's why there's so many cars movies because they're the (gasps) most profitable. Yeah. Mm. Those, those movies make more money in merchandise than they do at the box office. It makes me cry because that means that Pixar sold out. Everyone just like turns their back and closes their wallet simultaneously. These movies just won't happen anymore, but. Um, as long as people are they're buying the stuff or the DVDs or the the toys or whatever, it's they're still going to be like you know rolling these movies out. Grr, Eric. So I recently enjoyed a holiday while the Melbourne International Film Festival was on and had the great pleasure of seeing a slew of stunning films, many of which I saw by myself. I've always had great pleasure in going to the cinema on my own, and it's always been a bit of an escape from reality as well as a chance to evaluate a film for yourself without really having to worry about whatever your partner or friends or parents or small children that you have to look after are thinking. Some people, though, do hate going to the movies on their own, but for me, there is absolutely nothing better. So how about you guys? Do you prefer a solo screening or going with someone special? There are pluses and minuses to both. Um, Occupational has a doing film reviews and stuff. I see a lot of films on my own and I do enjoy it. I get time to digest and sleep on these things and really give time to formulate an opinion. When when I started um, dating my current partner, Sam, because obviously I took him to you know, media screenings and things like that. Whenever we'd walk out of a cinema, like not even three seconds later, he'd turn to me and go, so how many stars would you give it? How many stars would you give it? And I <laughs> wanted to punch him in the face every time. And he, I'd let him get away with it for a long time until one day I'd like seriously, like I snapped. And I was like, you have to stop fucking asking me how many stars I would give this movie. Like you need to give me time to process. So yeah, there are pluses and minuses to both. Um, one of my biggest pet peeves when it comes to seeing movies with someone else or a group of people is obviously organising it. The older you get and when people, you know, have mm. wives and husbands and partners and children. Oh, dear God, children. And everyone, and you know, eventually <laughs> you'll get together and you'll sit there and then people, someone will go, oh, I really want to see this movie. And, you know, five or six voices pipe up and you sit there and go, well, let's all go see it together. And then getting those you know, half a dozen people together at the same time in the same room becomes Mm. impossible and you want to pull your hair out and then eventually just go see it by yourself anyway. Yeah, nah. (laughs) (laughs) You are a much better person than I am because if I had a partner who was constantly asking me after the film, how many stars, I would break up with them. I would salt the earth. (laughs) I would never speak to them again. I'd be like, get away from me. That is heinous mm-hmm. yeah he's special <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i'm all for seeing a film by yourself and the same thing actually it wasn't until i really started going to the film festival that i really like started seeing films by myself on a consistent regular basis on the reg on the reg you know on the reg. going steady with myself <laughs> 
much. <laughs> the problem is if you see a movie that you truly love and that really got you and the credits start rolling, the first thing you want to do is turn to someone and go, oh, my God, how good was that? And this and this and this and this and this. And you can't do that when you're by yourself. Mm. Yeah, but fuck other people. But sometimes I'm okay with that. Sometimes I just need to process. Yeah. By the same token, though, like I, I, don't, I don't mind sort of going to – like when you're going to see like a movie by yourself and you, it's kind of like – it's your thing, but you know it won't be someone else's thing, and it might be crap. So you're kind of throwing yourself on a grenade. Well, that's 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 my motivation mm. to go and see movies by myself. Anyway, the first movie I went to go and see by myself was uh, Batman vs Superman, because um, <laughs> I kn- I knew it was going to be shit house, <laughs> and uh, but I was like I was like still curious about it. I didn't want to drag anyone down with mm. me. So um, and it, plus the movie went the movie went for about four hours anyway. So um, I think it's still going. I think that's yeah. No, 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 no. You're thinking of the Lord of the Rings. Some say it never ends. I think, in a way, all of us are still watching Batman v Superman: <laughs> Justice. It's actually this is like the Matrix, and we're actually just sitting there watching. <laughs> um, I think that was one of the first films where Jess, you can correct me on this. It was Daniel, you, me, and I think it was Jack at the time who who were all there at the screening. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. And three of us hated Yield. it, absolutely hated it. And one of us, I'm not naming any names, Daniel. <laughs> but you can guess but it. <laughs> it was totally dead. It was 100% dead. <laughs> yeah. What gave it away? I look, I'm not saying who. <laughs> I'm pointing names and naming fingers. This is where I whisper really quietly that I also kind of don't hate it. Oh, shut oh. up. Hey guys, how you doing? It's situations like that where there's such a divided opinion, especially when they are such strong opinions both ways, that it does get a bit awkward when you're with a bunch of other people. Uh, And especially on a film like that, you know, this wasn't just some nice little pleasant, you know, rom-com that you forget about afterwards. This is like very full on, very long, very very divisive. (laughs) But sometimes... Oh yeah, it's bad. I would not argue that it's actually good. (laughs) But sometimes you get to like sort of state your argument... And hear both sides, and sometimes it will sway you maybe a little bit in one direction or the other. And but at the, yeah, whatever your initial feeling was tends to be the one you stick with. In conclusion, fuck other people. I walked out of that film with free razors, so we're like. <laughs> And don't forget, we got the 3D glasses that had, and they came in a pouch, and oh, the pouch had a, had, a, had a Superman cape on it. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. That and the Superman razor, which I still use to this day, are <laughs> the most memorable things about that film. Good Lord, change your razor, man. That's just unhygienic. <laughs> <laughs> just Superman is impervious to harm, not you, Charlie. Superman. Jess, unless you don't know how men's razors work, you change the head of them, but you, you keep the actual oh, razor Oh, like the part, body the of handle. the razor. Oh, okay. Yes, it's not like I'm using the same okay. the same <laughs> for the last five years. Right, I would draw my objection. <laughs> I would literally be bleeding every time I shave if that were the case. <laughs> okay, moving on. This week we celebrate the 30th anniversary of the hilarious, the swashbuckling, and the fantastical The Princess Bride. I'll explain. No, there is too much. I'll sum up. Back in 1987, in between Stand By Me and When Harry Met Sally, the inconceivable <clears throat> Sorry, the incomparable Rob Reiner directed what was known as the unfilmable William Goldman novel of the same name. Casting non-household names and a French wrestling giant who could barely speak English, it shouldn't have worked and many thought it wouldn't. And yet here we are, 30 years later, still gushing over one of the most romantic, beloved and utterly quotable movies of all time. You know, it's funny, this movie actually brought us the most gory scene from Game of Thrones. That's like how influential uh, this movie is. 
Please explain. <laughs> yeah. Like, so in Game of Thrones, uh, okay, this is like, you know, mild spoilers. There's a character called um, Oberon, who's like a dashing sort of oh, rogue style dude. Yeah. And he gets into like a duel with a giant knight guy. And he's like saying, you know, uh, you know what was my sister's name? Say her name. Yeah. He's like an Indigo Montoya type. And uh, so he, he defeats this kind of like overwhelming opponent and says his like cool catchphrase and, um, and uh, comes out victorious until... The guy he thinks is dead drags him to the ground and explodes his head in this like really ultra gory, <laughs> like ridiculously gory scene. But like George R. R. Martin actually wrote that scene because he was such a fan of uh, Princess Bride and he wanted to invert this entire um, trope that Princess Bride kind of spawned. So, yeah, um, okay. I'm not I'm not like, I'm not a mega fan of um, I'm not a mega fan of um, Princess Bride, but um, the, the the movie itself and the book it's based on is like so well written that um, mm. yeah, it's like influenced like a ton of movies and TV series and fantasy novels and because like it's that. brilliant. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It's um, it is pretty well done. It's this amazing, but it's like this amazing gender bending film that just no one saw coming, and everyone just fell in love with it. It's amazing. It was like so well cast as well. I thought, and it gave the world the amazing Robin Wright. Yes. yes. Oh yeah, she's yeah. amazing. She, she was is, a soap opera um, actress before that. Really? Oh. Yeah. And she still is on House of Cards. <laughs> political soap opera yeah she is like so good in everything pretty much uh yeah. robin wright pen oh robin sorry robin wright i should say carrie elwes and miracle max yeah yeah carrie andre uh, the giant is an actor and yeah. maybe the best name yeah, ever mandy patinkin <laughs> mandy patinkin yes i love mandy her patinkin. mandy patinkin <laughs> mandy patinkin <laughs> Up there with Darren Aronofsky. And the bad guys were good. Had good bad guys. Uh... Yeah, Christopher Guest, as in I Am Spinal Taps, Christopher Guest was um, yeah, yeah. the six-fingered man. As well. What are those rats called? Rats of oh, something size? Oh, the rodents of unusual size. That's right, yeah. The Iowa. Yeah, cool movie. Well, if you, like me, are obsessed with The Princess Bride, you can read my full retrospective, which is up now at maketheswitch.com.au. We have some great giveaways up for grabs this week. National Theatre Live's Yerma hits cinemas shortly, and we're giving you the chance to attend a special preview screening. The incredible Billy Piper returns in her award-winning role as a young woman driven to the unthinkable by her desperate desire to have a child. Set in contemporary London, Piper's portrayal of a woman in her 30s desperate to conceive builds with elemental force to a staggering, shocking climax. For your chance to win, head to maketheswitch.com.au forward slash comps now. Now, before we go, we'd like to offer some cinematic inspiration to you, with each of us suggesting one film you should see this week and why. For me this week, I've been on a bit of a trend of dark films, I think, for the last couple of weeks, but this one was uh, something I revisited this week and thoroughly loved, as I do every single time. Uh, Donnie Darko, 2001. Ooh. Richard Kelly's defining film. Yeah. Theatrical cut? Yeah. No, sorry, I watched the director's cut. Oh. Yes. If you say you understand this film, you're a damn liar, but it's still brilliant. <laughs> you have Jake Gyllenhaal, <laughs> as well as his sister, Maggie, both playing... Ironically, siblings. <laughs> Essentially, the film begins with uh, a plane engine falling through the roof of Donnie Darko, played by Jake Gyllenhaal's room. 
who miraculously manages to survive by being on a sleepwalk. And from there on, he begins being pursued by a giant rabbit, which seems completely normal to him. Uh, He essentially is told that the world is going to end in 28 days, and uh, we kind of watch as things get closer and closer to to that deadline, and it's just this overwhelmingly dark, depressing, very twisted, but also very 80s and quite humorful film. I think I've done it a complete disservice in trying to describe it, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's utterly brilliant in every single way. Yeah. Including the 80s music. Because it is set in the 80s, it should be pointed out. Yes, it is. Yeah. All right, so that's me for this week. Jessica, how about yourself? Uh, I'm going to take a leaf out of Jake's book, who always, <laughs> who always recommends these really obscure... <laughs> C, D, E, F, great films that no one's ever heard Fantastic. of. Um, yeah, so this, this, one, this one comes from the 90s, and I bet each of you a Coke that none of you have ever heard of it, or at least, uh, you know, least of all seen it. Um, it's called The Mating Habits of the Earthbound Human, and it stars the fantabulous Carmen Electra. Um, it is a comedy. <laughs> it's what? a comedy. And it's, it's narrated by David Hyde Pierce, who plays an alien anthropologist. And he's Good following God. this couple played by Carmen Electra and, you know, some other guy. And he's narrating <laughs> their, you know, their courtship and their relationship and where it goes. And so obviously it's very, it's got a sense of irreverent humor. And it's um, obviously it's the way the aliens interpret how humans, you know, court and mate and et cetera, et cetera. And it is absolutely hilarious. It's actually re- really quite intelligent and it is so funny and is so bad and so 90s and it's got like Lucy Liu has a small part in it and stuff and it's it's so good it's so clever it's one of these really obscure films that you were sort of like I kind of I think I found it like the back of Blockbuster back in the day kids if you're listening to this you're gonna have to google Blockbuster uh yeah so it came out in 1999 and um yeah alien anthropologists uh mating habits of the earthbound human look it up all right Jake can you top that one um, okay, well, I was thinking about Red Sparrow quite a bit today for some reason, and um, so I'm going to recommend uh, a movie called Salt. Um, it's a 2010 American action thriller uh, directed by <laughs> Philip Noyce, and um, it is actually like a really, really good female spy sleeper agent style thriller. So Angelina Jolie plays Evelyn Salt, who is accused of being a Russian sleeper agent, and she has to go on the run to clear her name. Heaps of action. Uh, the movie itself was originally uh, written for Tom Cruise by a really, really shitty um, screenwriter called Kurt Wimmer. Another screenwriter came on board called uh, Brian Hegeland, who rewrote it for Angelina Jolie. And uh, it's, like a, it's, a, it's just an awesome action movie. Um, Angelina Jolie is pretty good. All the action is like practical. So there's like a minimal use of you know, CGI and all that stuff. Um, so it all looks really slick and it's, it's pretty convincing. And um, yeah, the movie is just like surprisingly good for like a you know Angelina Jolie action movie, and it's one of those things where like I watch this movie, I'm just kind of like, why hasn't you know Marvel actually done anything with that Black Widow property? Just because like Salt is kind of like a blueprint in terms of the whole Russian sleeper agent, super spy, you know, ass kicking um, agent thing. Because they'd they'd offend all their male fans. Yeah, uh, all their sort of male fans and their their parents. Basically. Please, half of them are there to watch Scarlett Johansson in tight leather. That's a, yeah, that's the thing. Like it's just it's inexplicable. But um, anyway, salt. That's my, that's my pick for this week. All right, Chris. Finally, it is your turn. What are you bringing to the table? I mean, how can I follow those highbrow picks? 
Um, <laughs> well, I guess I'm going to follow this. I rewatched this film last night and it is one of my favorite movies of all time, I guess. I loved it when it came out and it is Carol, the beautiful Cate Blanchett, Rooney Mara romance directed by Todd Haynes and based on the Patricia Highsmith novel, The Price of Salt. And I know we mentioned it the other week when we did our gay cast uh, as in a recent example of a great queer film, but it is just so beautiful. It's just so beautiful. I can't deal with this movie, you guys. It's one of the most perfect evocations of what it means to experience queer love inside of a society that is unaccepting of queer love in the way that it really positions these women in a man's world and so succinctly demonstrates what it's like for them to hide so much of themselves from the world at large and the codifying of behaviours and romantic gestures. And it's just really fantastic. So yeah, that's my pick. Carol, go see it. It's a modern classic. If you haven't seen it, I guess you're homophobic. But you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And you hate women. There you go. Oh my God. See Carol or you hate women and you hate gays. Vote yes. (laughs) You're bigger than prick. (laughs) (laughs) Far out. Well, there's something for everyone there, although it's a pretty persuasive (laughs) argument to go see Carol. Well, you can find the links to all the articles we've talked about on this week's podcast at maketheswitch.com.au. Please subscribe to Switchcast on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform, and don't forget to rate us. And stay in touch on Twitter. I'm at Charlie underscore David. Jess. I'm Miss Jess underscore Switch. Jake. At Jake Chatty. And Chris. At Chris C. Edwards. Like it? Follow it. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at maketheswitchau to stay up to date with all the latest reviews, news, trailers, and giveaways. And you can find all the notes and links to everything we've discussed in this week's podcast, as well as other episodes, by visiting switchcast.com.au. On next week's show, I'll have the lowdown on Emma Stone and Steve Carell's Battle of the Sexes. And I'll have my review of Heal the Living. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you all next week.